Hello, and welcome to Shush, the ironically titled podcast all about health libraries. This is the second episode, so if you've got this far, well done. I'm glad we haven't scared you off yet. My guest on this episode is Cheryl Hamill. Cheryl is somewhat of an eminent grease of health libraries in Australia. In 2020, she was granted the HCL Anderson Award, the highest honour that can be bestowed on an associate member for ALIA. It's awarded in recognition of outstanding service to the library and information profession in Australia, and I think is a fitting tribute to Cheryl, as she has contributed so much and mentored so many. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, Cheryl. Welcome to this little podcast that I'm trying to get going. Um, Thanks very much for being a guest on it. Thank you very much, Daniel. So what's your current role? How would you describe what you're doing day-to-day at the moment? Uh, Well, my title is Head of Department for Library and Information Services and technically employed in one what we call over here health service provider or in some areas, other states, I think they're called health districts or uh, area health services. So um, we're technically, my department's technically employed, all the staff are technically employed by the South Metropolitan Health Service, which covers uh, three reasonable sized hospitals uh, and one very small one, but we also provide service to the East Metropolitan Health Service, so that's two of the three Metropolitan Health Services in Perth. Uh, so that includes the two tertiary level, quaternary level hospitals, Fiona Stanley, Royal Perth, and then um, regional or sort of uh, metropolitan sort of hospitals at Armadale and Rockingham, and then what they call specialist hospitals with a limited case mix. Uh, at Bentley and Fremantle, and then uh, Little Kalamunda, which is the palliative care place, and uh, Murray District, which is a tiny little hospital in the sort of the outskirts of Perth at Pinjarra. So um, essentially we look after any of the staff from the East and the South Metropolitan Health Services. Right, so that's a fair footprint of Perth really, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's a third of the general area ones. There are other um, health services in WA, like there's the Child and Adolescent Health Service, which is the Perth Children's Hospital, but obviously also has a statewide role. Uh, there's a psychiatric library, there's um, WA Country Library, uh, Department of Health itself. So there's several libraries. Um, I can't remember how many actually. Um, seven or so libraries across the WA health system um, but we would be the biggest one because we cover two area health services um, yeah. yeah. And how many actual libraries do you have within that? Or uh, there's two physical sites so we provide service out of the two um, tertiary quaternary level hospitals so we have um, some staff sitting at Fiona Stanley Hospital and the other the balance of the staff at the Royal Perth Hospital uh, Royal Perth used to be the biggest hospital but um, in WA, but now Fiona Stanley is far, far bigger. 
uh, and it's the most sort of high-level, quaternary-level hospital, although Royal Perth does trauma, so it's a bit of a strange uh, delineation between the, the hospitals. Yeah, yeah. And do you mm. feel like you're able to service the other facilities as well, even though you obviously have the, the staff located in the major hospitals, but um, is it a challenge to provide services to staff not on those campuses? Uh, it is really. It, it, the, the challenge, I mean, it's not a challenge to deploy stuff electronically because obviously that's just there, but it's yeah. a challenge to make sure people know it's there and are able to actually use it and know, know how to access it. And uh, we certainly don't have enough staff to do a lot of outreach and going out to the other hospitals. We do do it. We do do training. So I think we do two visits a year to Rockingham, uh, a bit more ad hoc at Armadale. So they're the next biggest hospitals. They're like the um, what used to be called in the old days a secondary hospital or um, they're now called a um, sort of like a regional hospital. So uh, they still have quite high-level services. They'll have intensive cares and so on, but they don't do the, you know, the heart transplants or the, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is it is a challenge to um, make sure they're aware of us and uh, you know know that they can use us. And but I mean that's a challenge even in the big hospitals. You still find people who say, "Oh, I worked here for twenty years. I didn't know you existed." Yeah, of course. It's sort of sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think every hospital librarian I've spoken to has that lament as well. That, yeah, and there's it's such very a turnover of staff as well. Like it's you know not only making hospital aware, but then. Every year, you know, you've got a new influx of junior doctors mm. and all, you know, nursing, all sorts of clinical staff are turning over frequently. And so to keep everyone always aware um, and they, you know, you might speak to them orientation or whatever else, but they're only thinking about getting their payslip and those sorts of things. And so it's kind of meeting people when they actually need, you know, literature and evidence and, and that type of thing and making sure mm. they're aware at that moment, which is... Yeah, always the I guess that we catch the doctors a bit because uh, when they come in, uh, they're oriented as either South or East Metro, so they're not oriented as just Fiona Stanley or just Royal Perth, and they do rotate, you know, from Fiona Stanley to Fremantle and to Rockingham, and yep. uh, they rotate from um, um, Royal Perth to Bentley and Armadale. So we do catch all the doctors at orientation. But yeah. it's all the other staff that are much more difficult to catch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you end up working in health libraries? Was it your uh, passion and yeah. dreams from a youthful? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Although I was a bit of a, a nerdy library girl at school, but um, uh, I did the undergraduate course at Curtin. Uh, had a fairly monumental struggle with statistics, but eventually passed. And... Um, uh, which I now look back on and think is quite amusing. But um, I actually did children's librarianship. I sort of thought I might be a children's librarian. Uh, but then it became clear I would um, probably, you know, to get into a school or something like that, I would have to become a teacher as well. And I wasn't too keen on being a teacher. <laughs> and um, I just fell into a job at um, what used to be called the Mental Health Services Library way back in May of 1979. And um, as a library assistant, so I started as a library assistant, ended up getting a job at that same library as a librarian as that library began to grow as the mental health services grew. And then in uh, 
1984, they merged the formerly independent mental health department with the public health department. And I think it became the health department of WA at that point. And because there was already a library at the department um, and there was a librarian at Fremantle who was not happy where she was, she moved to the department and I got moved from mental health to Fremantle. <laughs> and then I stayed at Fremantle for many, many years until Fiona Stanley opened in, um, I think it was 2015, and we moved from Fremantle to Fiona Stanley because... Fremantle was downgraded from being a tertiary level hospital to being a um, a, um, a, a much sort of um, reduced sort of a case mix. So they only do aged care, mental health, um, and they now do uh, an increasing range of elective surgery. But it was decided that there was no point having a library there. It needed to be at Fiona Stanley. Uh, and at that time, Royal Perth, there was no East Metro, there was only South and North, so it's a long, complicated story, but there was only uh, North and South, and at that point, they merged the former Fremantle Library with the Royal Perth Library, and I was put in charge into a single structure with the two sites, which is what we still have now. And after finally getting that all in place, after about two years, they then formed the East Metropolitan Health Service oh, and talked wow. about splitting us. But uh, in the end, I said, look, there's no point splitting us. You know, what would be the point? Because our collections for the South has either gone in the bin or it's gone to Royal Perth and um, Fiona Stanley's fairly uh, paperless environment. So uh, we don't, we've only got about 2,000 books here and that's all we could squish in. So... Um, so they've left us together, uh, providing a service from the south to the east on a service level agreement basis. So that's how I ended up here. I sort of um, have been in the very fortunate position of only ever having to apply for the, my job twice, once when I got a job at mental health and once when I um, was formally appointed to the job at Fremantle. Um, and then I sort of merged seamlessly across into Fiona Stanley. So I don't think many librarians these days would... <laughs> have such a smooth pa passage into management. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, quite a nice thing to have. And I guess that experience really helps. You know, they don't want to be starting afresh. And so you're able to bring all that to bear with the, you know, machinations of changing the organisations and all of that. So yeah, yeah. Sure it was a big help. Yes. Well, <laughs> they're stuck with me now till I, till I retire. <laughs> And so Fremantle was good to you? You enjoyed the time there? Oh, I love Fremantle, yeah. It was a hard adjustment to a, um, you know, sort of an environment with open plan offices and um, uh, lots of people that you know, you know, you, you know, you don't know and um, where, you know, it was quite a community at Fremantle. It was lovely. Yeah. Still meet people who go, oh, they were the days, <laughs> <laughs> which makes you think, hmm, am I getting old? <laughs> Going into this a bit too early, this reminiscent stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you do sort of, um, sort of bits of everything while you were at Fremantle? So, um, yeah, we were or... obviously a much smaller staff, so yeah. we've now got, 10.6 staff all up, uh, including me. Uh, at Fremantle, I think we had about 4.5 or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, you tended to, to do a little bit of everything. Um, it's definitely less so now that I'm managing across two sites. It's definitely a step up. 
um, yeah. and some areas I'm very much de-skilled from the day-to-day stuff. And um, do you uh, miss that? Or you just... I do. I, I do keep my hand in with searching because I've always loved searching and. Um, I was fortunate, I think, to be trained in the days when we had very, very lengthy, extensive education because it was all so new back then that it was a... Now, sort of people come out of school and everyone thinks everyone can do everything and so there's not that focus on um, the in-depth sort of analysis of the databases and the fields and, the, you know... Um, and of course, when I was learning, there were also time pressures and cost pressures. You know, you paid per minute in some of the databases. So you had to sort of construct your search before you started, you know, consulting all these reference, you know, thesaurus, thesauri that, you know, different thesauri for the different databases and then go in and execute it as fast as you could and download as much as you could and get out as fast as you could. <laughs> so, and then pick through, you know, great reams of paper trying to sort of isolate the best, best ones. So it was sort of, um, yeah, so I think learning in that sort of environment, um, yeah, it certainly sets you up. And, and so I do like it. I'm, I, I do feel even there that I'm fairly de-skilled. Uh, I, I mean, I can do things if I turn my hand to it, and I think I've yeah. probably got um, some advantages in some of the other younger staff who are much better at me in some ways, but sometimes I find they sort of overlook things that I think are blindingly obvious, and I think... How did you not get that? <laughs> but it's just that you forget those years of experience, you know, that um, they're going to have under their belt eventually. But, yeah, um, yeah some things they just aren't exposed to in the way I was exposed to them. Of course, yeah. And having that mm. awareness was from the ground up, as you say, from, you know, inside out with big records and um, the yeah, various databases and all of that, I'm sure, Um does make a difference as opposed to simply you know, coming in and you know, searching an interface and learning a couple of ways of managing that and that sort of it. So I think that yeah, having that thorough grounding within you know field structures and all of that, I'm sure, must be an advantage and allows you just to see what you're missing or those sorts of gaps in that. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's a rewarding thing to do as one of the services because. People are very grateful, you know, <laughs> to yes. have that assistance. So, you know, it's like uh, one of the feel-good bits to the service that you just don't get when you're paying invoices, <laughs> negotiating <laughs> licence terms or whatever. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And mm. it's also a unique skill in that, yeah, so many staff um, openly acknowledge that, you know, it's not a strong point and that they don't do it very often and that they can pretty much always... Um, you can find things either more comprehensively or more targeted than they're able to. So, yeah, uh, I think that's definitely one of the strengths of the profession and the rewards of the profession. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your library is well supported or resourced in terms of the contemporary setup that you have? I think compared, certainly compared to other parts of uh, other libraries in the WA Health System, we certainly are. Um, and I think that's because we've got two of the three big teaching hospitals in our remit and also when they opened the new Fiona Stanley Hospital in 2015, I think it was towards the end of 2014, it began to open at fully finished opening in 2015. 
um, you know, when you're setting something up from scratch, they um, they wanted people who came on board the clinic because they um, were essentially merging people that were coming from lots of different hospitals into a completely new site, sort of in the suburbs as opposed to in a city. They wanted the clinical people to be, you know, well served in terms of the services that were available to them so that their transition was a bit easier. So I think um, we managed, and and I guess also traditionally, uh, Fremantle as it was then and um, uh, Royal Perth had always had decent sorts of budgets anyway. Just, I don't know, I, I think the North has struggled a bit more because they're physical location co-locates them with the University of WA's medical library and so in the print era you know people would go I'll just duck next door and get what I want which of course you can't do now in the online world but um, that mindset continued there so that library never had the funding or the support that uh, Royal Perth and Fremantle had and when we opened that um, because of the shadow of the university basically sorry um, because of the shadow of the university. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So in in many, you know, it's not. I wouldn't say it's due to um, design or management. It's you know some. Oh well, some of it's that, but it's also you can't overlook the um, uh, the the factor of luck. You know, yeah. in that sense. Um, so uh, yeah, and we, I guess, in those days too, we tended to report through clinical areas, and so they got why we existed and they wanted us to do stuff and they wanted the resources delivered and so uh, we did tend to be fairly well supported and of course opening Fiona Stanley they didn't want to open it and then and especially because opening it with no actual building that looked anything like a library which is you know the library as we call it is really you could be mistaken for thinking it's just a computer lab it it looks like a computer lab so uh, they needed to make sure people got what they wanted, so um, yeah, and and that they were happy to have it electronically. So we were pretty well supported. It took it wasn't straightforward. I had a very good manager when we first opened. He was the director of clinical services now in Queensland, I believe. Uh, he was our area director of clinical services, and he certainly fought the battles in executive for us, mm-hmm. um, which set us up really well, and. Uh, although there's been talk of cuts since then, uh, we haven't actually been cut, which has been really quite surprising. Um, we didn't really this this year get uh, an increase that would match the publisher price increases, but we did get a small increase. So I, I feel, compared to many other places, we've been very fortunate in that sense. And I think it also comes down to, you know, Keeping your management informed, uh, and we report. Oh, I report now. I don't report to a clinical area, which I was a bit nervous about when that changed because they got rid of that position of the area director of clinical services, and uh, they've put the library under uh, an executive director of finance and corporate services or something, and I thought that might be uh, a very negative thing, but. Uh, my manager does understand um, again the the need for libraries, and um, so I, I'm assuming he's been supportive because we haven't really had any, uh, you know, negative things happening to our budget. So I'm assuming that's um, down to him, or 
not quite you're never quite clear why sometimes your budgets are maintained and why sometimes they just get slashed and sometimes it's just bad luck you know if they've got a big deficit they've got to cover everybody's going to get slashed and there's nothing you can do about it yeah but so far i'd say we're supported well supported and re- and you know resource we can always do more i would love to have more staff but you know in the environment we're in you can see that's not even any point asking for that <laughs> yeah no of reality kicks in. So how do you sort of maintain that um, open relationship with the higher-ups? Do you sort of do it strategically or deliberately or you just kind of hope that it works? Well, we do have a a library committee that's a big support and although it's called the, you know, the dual service library committee in point of fact, it's largely been um, Royal Perth people because Royal Perth, I, I never had a library committee or I did many years ago at Fremantle, but in the last few years at Fremantle, I didn't even have a library committee, but um, Royal Perth always had one and they were always fairly active and I know they advocate very heavily behind the scenes as well because um, uh, I know that at the last library committee meeting we had last year, uh, the finance people in East Metropolitan, who's our parallel organisation, they were talking about oh, well, we'll have to cut your budget. And I was going, oh, please don't do that. (laughs) And I know that our chairman of the library committee, who's a very well-respected respiratory physician, um, uh, took it straight to the chief executive and said, don't do it. (laughs) Um, So It's a nice sort of channel, isn't it, to have? (laughs) Yeah, and and I think also, um, you know, you have to report, up to those managers in terms of letting them know you're getting value for what you're buying and um, I've always done that as well with renewals. I don't just like you know send them lots of bills to pay and not explain anything. Um, I always say look you know this is costing us so much per use we're getting good value from it and we've had this many downloads a year and um, you know I and I put up a lot of information on a closed website that um, the executive uh, at both sites can see that explains how we operate and you know how things are going and mm. um, so you have to communicate a lot to those people to keep them on side um, but yeah and, and I, I never take like... it for granted because I do know I've heard yeah. so many from so many other libraries that no matter how how good a job you do with all of that sometimes you know the tides of history are against you and it'll just be slash and burn time <laughs> Yeah. Do you feel like they sort of are able to um, read the narrative that you're telling in terms of, you know, why this number of downloads is significant or, you know, whether, I don't know, you know, a volume of texts have been you know, read 600 times versus 6,000 times or it's more just an overall picture that I guess you're able to present? Or? Yeah, I think I think also they've they've got aspirations, you know, like they're all... They both all the health services because we're now independent um, health services east and south. We've got our own boards. We've gone back to that in 2016. All of the health services in WA uh, were um, established as independent entities. Uh, before that, we'd been just one big metropolitan health services board and the Department of Health. But now the Department of Health is what they call the system manager, and the health services are independent. So. Um, those boards are the ones that are um, critical, but they have great aspirations for our hospitals to be seen as, you know, real leaders in research and so on. So they can't really do that without 
a library service, you know, yeah. and especially if you try to embed yourself in those research and quality and safety type areas and, you know, make sure they see that, you know, you're bringing value to those functions that they think are important, then I think that's a really important thing too. Like, I, you know, I will always put my hand up for anything to do with research, you know, like, yes. um, because it just increases your visibility and it is what we're there for, you know. It's not just a marketing exercise. It's why we exist. We exist to support, you know, clinical care. We exist to support research, education and quality health evidence-based, you know, management and policy making. So... Um, and, you know, you reach out to those people with, you know, little updates and snippets that they'll find helpful and just, yeah, marketing's a big part of what you have to do, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm. So that, like, looking upwards, yeah, that'll make sense. Um, looking at your clients, do you kind of have a sense of who your typical clients are or who uses the library heavily? Yeah, it's funny in the online world, sometimes you have no sense whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> you can see stuff being used, but you know, you sort of, and especially at Fiona Stanley, because um, uh, the, the library space, which I described as a um, internet cafe sort of style, we've only got space down there for two staff to sit, so the rest of us all sit up on the second floor in a sort of an open plan office area with nursing staff development and allied health staff development and medical workforce so it's and research and it researches up here too so i sit directly behind research so that's great but um you don't really get much of a sense <laughs> it's quite funny uh, but i mean obviously it's the medical staff the nursing staff uh the allied health staff and increasingly we're getting a lot of demand from, you know, project officers who are looking at, you know, return on investment and cost benefit analysis of, you know, investing in more sort of big command and control centres that, you know, in a hospital that sort of drag in lots of data and, you know, yep. helps them with decision making and, yes, and even clinical, you know, big clinical decision support sort of um, areas. Um, so, you know, there's a, a bit of a growth area in that as well. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't know the percentage division between no. all of those people. But nurses are obviously a big part of the population. Yeah. And it's good that the library use is sort of following those shifts in healthcare and healthcare delivery and, and those sorts of things. So it's not just, you know, traditional, I guess, case study-based searching and all that, but it's actually... Yeah, the, the project managers and those sort of change of service delivery type roles are still using you know, the library. Mm. I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah I important think, and they're, they're quite good evidence too. Yeah, they're quite tricky to search some of those areas as well. But and we're Absolutely. certainly getting a a big demand for searches to support systematic reviews. It's noticeable. Any all of our searches are. Um, up considerably um, on what we've done in previous years. So we're actually getting busier um, this year. I think, you know, it, it took several years. It re you can't underestimate how long it takes to get a new hospital settled in. You know, it really did take yeah. many years before Fiona Stanley settled in and before Royal Perth sort of adjusted to all of the changes they had to adjust to as well. Uh, but things are really starting to... Um, you know, hum along and they're very interested to see progress in their research output and so we've had a lot of calls to, you know, provide that on a monthly basis of how well they're doing and 
they love the graph that shows the you know the sort of exponential rise um, in publication output of staff post you know Fiona Stanley opening and yeah mm. so they're they're really you know wanting to collaborate with people more and they're wanting to you know to really tap into who's doing what and so yeah it's it's quite an exciting time. So you capture those metrics in terms of um, local publications and that type of thing? Uh, yeah, we do. I've done it so far myself, but I'm going to be handing it on, you know, the monthly compilation of that. But yeah. I always tell them, you know, the monthly stuff is um, really, I, I, you know, I'm just dragging it basically out in PubMed, but, um, I, you know, I always give it to them with about 100 caveats that, you know, it's really yeah. just if they happen to have mentioned this um these, you know, South Metro organisation as a as a, a organisational affiliation, and until we have organisational identifiers that are routinely used by anyone publishing, we're never going to capture anyone, everyone. So one, we also once a year do a really full-on exercise trying to harvest absolutely everything, because we know there are some people who publish and never mention Fiona Stanley or you know Royal Perth or whatever. Um, but that process takes a good three or four weeks to really do it extensively and properly. Yeah. So we're giving them a monthly thing, but saying, well, here's something, but remember, it's not everything. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll give it, you everything once a year. <laughs> and it indicates trends and you know, um, shifts and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's mm. never a, a bad thing. Um, so you also mentioned the idea of the systematic reviews increasing and all of that. Um, is that part of people's sort of academic and higher degree studies or are they, uh, and therefore are you sort of supporting them in those roles um, as a bit of a crossover with uni? Yeah, or do you feel yeah like I believe some of the colleges are actually um, requiring people to have right. done some sort of a systematic review. Um, and but yeah, there there are some people who are doing PhDs and masters and so on, and um, through a university, but they don't tend to get that level of search support from universities yeah. generally. Yeah. Um, and so they're increasingly coming to us, but we do also have the same problem every every library has in that when they say it's a systematic review, it's often not. Um, <laughs> but also, um, we also find they're trying to craft themselves a question that's as narrow as they possibly can so they can get you know a smaller number because they know you know the a proper search is going to bring in thousands of results they don't want thousands so they try to increasingly narrow their search or their, their search parameters so that or their search questions so that um, the retrieval is less so it, it, it feels to me a bit like you know these systematic reviews are not a good way for the world of research to go. I think we'd be better off putting a bit more effort into <laughs> proper research instead of. Um, I think it's a bit of a publication factory, systematic reviews, yeah. and I'm not sure they add a lot to the world. I've been wondering that myself as well. They sort of, and yeah, it's across the board, certainly in our place as well. The proliferation of um, systematic reviews. I think oftentimes, you know, the first chapter or two of a PhD can be published like that, and then. They go on and do the the primary research, but um, yeah, I wonder about that balance between meta-analysis and actual you know, replication studies and um, you know, production of primary research, so that you've actually got some content to meta-analyze. Yeah. You know, so. we have had a couple that I think are really genuine 
you know, where they've got uncertainties around a clinical question yeah. and, you know, they know there's uncertainties and they they want those uncertainties clarified and they're trying to see whether anyone out there has actually, you know, covered the thing or whether they really need to start doing some research. So, uh, yeah, but really the number of those would probably only be, I don't know, yeah, you could probably count them on one or two hands out of all of the, you know, the ones that we get asked for, which are not particularly systematic. <laughs> More comprehensive literature reviews or, mm. yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a proper research methodology, isn't it? And if it's not treated mm. that way, then it's just kind of uh, seen as a cheap entry to get, as you say, <laughs> publications mm. churned out or whatever, but... Um, it's still got to be as as with primary research, you know, unless it's actually answering useful questions and it's going to be done rigorously, then um, it's yeah not necessarily the most um, worthwhile exercise. No, and it feels a bit like you're doing an awful lot of work for no great um, benefit to mankind, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. But then it's, I mean, yeah. You, it's not necessarily the most straightforward thing to say, well, actually, I don't think you should be doing that either, is it? You sort of have to negotiate, I guess, and add robustness into the question rather than rejecting it outright. I think that's Yeah, the no, there's a lot of back and forth in the initial stages, but... Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like... Um, you mentioned that Fiona you know, Stanley in particular is sort of a paperless, in theory, environment and a bit of an internet cafe, so... The library itself, are people happy going sort of whole as bolus digital or do they still like print for some things? Or? Uh, we still find there's a quite a demand for the print books. Uh, we do still buy print books. Um, but maybe we, we, well, definitely, we don't buy the, you know, the three-volume Campbell's Orthopaedics or, you know, somebody's renal diseases or, you know, whatever. We don't buy those multi-volume things anymore in in print, they're definitely, they've definitely crossed over quite well to the online world. Um, but the study type books and the, you know, the books that, you know, cause you to think, you know, change management and, you know, those sorts of, um, you know, um, multiple choice question-y type things or the, you know, overview of, whatever or crash course in yeah. type books there's still a really heavy demand for them and some of the um, courses like advanced life support or breastfeeding or lactation stuff um, there's still a huge demand for those in print um, and so and luckily they're cheaper so that's good because the online stuff consumes more and more of the budget of course so um yeah, so we do still buy those, but even there, increasingly, because we've got people, you know, scattered across the metropolitan area, over a very big area, um, we do try to buy some of the books as well on, you know, even those um, individual sort of type books. Um, we try to buy them online if we can, because um, then they're accessible by anybody anywhere. So, um, mm. uh, yeah, so it's a bit of a mix. But, and you, you still definitely need both, so that it's not an age thing. We find people come in and they'll, you know, it doesn't matter what age they are, you'll hear them say, oh, you, you know, you say, I've got this online, but it's also in print. Oh, I want the print. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, I think, yeah, still quite a universal experience, remarkably. Um, and I think it's a mm. function of 
human cognitive learning as much as anything, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah, they find it easier to to retain what they've read if they've read it in print somehow. Yeah, and you know, digital objects can be you know, even scrolling through an ebook if you're wanting to skip a couple hundred pages or whatever. You know, probably enough flicking a page is easier than that. You know, if you're wanting mm. to, as you say, universal access. You know, um, ebooks work better. Copying, pasting, all that type of thing works. But in terms of a, a learning object, yeah, we certainly find the same thing that um, print is much the preferred um, for. For books in particular, um, journals. And there's still some um, publishers who, you know, major publishers like Elsevier who've got a significant print catalogue and I gather the print division doesn't always hand over the stuff to the online division and so, yeah. you know, someone asked the other day for an e-book of a particular book and when I went looking, you couldn't buy the e-book but you could buy the print. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, a major publisher not sort of... Um, and and when I've spoken to that publisher in the past and said, well, why can't we have this as an e-book in this package? And, well, the print division won't give it to us. <laughs> it's quite strange. Yeah, all those machinations, um, you know, you just can't control those things, can you? And so this no. idea that, yeah, always online sort of world is um, just not borne out in reality at all. So. Um, you mentioned also your love of PubMed searching for such a long time. Um, do you feel like searching has changed in terms of you know clinician-based searching? Is sort of you know Google and then a couple of keywords in PubMed people's approach, or do you find quite sophisticated searches in amongst others? Well, I haven't, haven't met very many sort of end users who are what I would call a sophisticated searcher. There are some. Um, but not a lot and most people do tend to use it very much like Google which I guess is why National Library of Medicine is redeveloping it more and more like Google. Um, I've started trying to use the new version of PubMed but I, I am struggling with it in some ways. I thought At first I was saying to some of my staff, well I think people are just being negative about the new one because you know they people don't like change but when I tried to use it the other day, I thought, hmm, I don't like this either. No, <laughs> so there some, I'm hoping it'll still be be better when they finally do the complete switch. I'm hoping there's features that are still going to come into it. Um, but, yeah, most people are still, I think, you know, I think, and I think that there's all the evidence is out there that even Google searches, people don't look beyond the first page, maybe the second page of results. Um, and they don't tend to think laterally in terms of what terms they could use to search for concepts. And so, yeah. um, that, and I think PubMed does help, help a lot with the mapping it does in the background to give even pretty terrible searches some sort of reasonable chance of retrieving something that's not too bad. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's just the world, isn't it? Everybody looks everything up themselves these days so <laughs> yeah but then as you say when where there's structure and detail that's required with the systematic review and whatever sense people might think of that I think that's when the limitations are really exposed and they do seek out um, yeah the support of people who do it all day every day so um, mm. you just, yeah you can't claim to have any sort of a um, Systematic approach, while you know 
working just off those you know, very superficial keyword sort of searches. And, no, no. Yeah, um, they say artificial intelligence will make a big difference, but um, yeah, I, I don't know that semantic type and yeah, understanding yeah. of concepts is. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there are people who say, you know, you can teach things, you know, use artificial intelligence, but you can educate the engine to sort of recognise similarities and so on. But but they're really, when you look at some things that people come in and say, you know, this is relevant and this is relevant, and you look at them and you think, gee, I wouldn't have put those two together as both being relevant. But I know. So you've really got to read it. <laughs> yes, and... Um I know that there's work in terms of structuring, you know, abstracts and um, using consistent terminology and things like that. But I think we're still a long, long way from that actually, you know, translating to just plug in what you need and you'll get, you know, a comprehensive match back. Um, mm. Even as you mentioned before, like even getting an affiliation right, like some people will put. Yeah, one place, some people put another, some people put both, some people put neither, so, mm. um, and then, yeah, switching to organizational identifiers, you still need to have that communicated and, you know, used consistently, and so, there's just, um, so much complexity in the system in terms of language and then structure of records and input of, you know, from publishers or, you know, so many different sources that, um, it's going to be, very, very difficult, I think, despite the processing power of AI, you know, to actually, you know, I think there's still going to be just too much garbage in for it to um, actually trust, you know, what it's mm. putting out. Yeah. But yeah, well, just, keep just librarians in a job, which is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's possible that we're just justifying our roles. But I think, and I mean, you know, we have had Google now in our lives for you know twenty plus years, and um, I think people still get frustrated at times with what it can and can't do. And it's absolutely tremendous for lots of things, but it still has its limits. And you know, people are cautious about yeah data being shared. There's all sorts of you know wrinkles and things that um, yeah I think um, don't make it all a, a linear progress towards you know, perfect searches based on um, you know, AI engines and the like. Yeah, I think people aren't very good at um, taking or even, you know, I mean, they fall at the first hurdle in not formulating the question very precisely, which is why, you know, the reference interview is still cool to everything we do, you know, if you don't... Yeah absolutely understand exactly what they're trying to do and often when you start questioning often they're not that they haven't actually thought through things themselves so well and so um, it actually helps define their question um, and sometimes people start we've had several cases lately where people have started way too specifically and asked for something incredibly specific and you say look we're just not finding anything so then they go a bit broader and so you find you're doing the same search about five times because you know they've not articulated what they really you know and, and they haven't sort of had a sense of how much might be out there and yeah. so they've you know attempted to be 
very specific, but they've been overly specific and then they don't understand that because they were so overly specific, we've had to broaden it anyway. So when they come back and ask, well, can you broaden it? We probably already have because we've seen there's been nothing there. <laughs> and yeah. so you have, a, and in the end you go, look, we absolutely, we can't find any more than that because we've already, you know, <laughs> had to broaden it to try to sort of find absolutely anything. So there's all the tricks in the bag, yeah. Yes, yeah. interesting. <laughs> and so that human mediation and iteration and you know experience to bear on the question, all of that. Again, I just I find it difficult to imagine um, that being replicated in a human to computer kind of interaction. And yeah, maybe that's naive on my behalf, but you know, that whole process of actually you know, teaching somebody. Well, you know, going from I you know have way too much or I have way too little. So going from that to a, a reasonable set of results, you know, answering mm. a, a reasonable question um, is not a, a straightforward thing and isn't something that people necessarily will have the skills to be able to do on their own. Even so, and interestingly, I think some of the AI stuff is starting to show. Um, like I read a really interesting blog post from a radiologist who's very keen on artificial intelligence, but he was pointing to um, the limitations of exactly what you said, like garbage in, you know, like his point was that if you got these massive data sets of, you know, x-rays and, and you know, does this is this lump the same as that lump and whatever, um, the problem was that, um, there's such variability in the metadata attached to those images that when they get dragged into a massive database and you then start trying to teach the AI algorithm, well, this lump is like that lump. Um, if the metadata is not correctly on it, correct on every image that you feed it, it starts to learn in a very skewed direction yeah. and it starts to identify things as the same when they're not and it you know, the other way around and, and it can, you know, you can just literally speed up a bad um, analysis of, of the images because it's got very... So, again, to me, that's, you know, metadata and, you know, the cataloging and that initial indexing is just critical before, in, you know, artificial intelligence can really be relied upon. You've really got to check um, mm. those original sources I worry at times about you know the discovery layers and things like that that um, are pretty good for some approaches. Typically, I find more you know sort of title level search and very detailed type searches. But if you're doing sort of a topic level search and trying to use um, discovery layers that are trying to Search across so many different types of sources, and you know, it's trying to learn. Oh, okay, if people use that term, then we can you know, match that to a mesh term or something, or um, yeah, certain vocabularies. But if it if it misses that initially, then it's not making that link, and so and you know, if people click on you know this result based on this keyword search, so it must mean that. Whereas if there's gaps in that, then it never learns that. And so, mm, mm. you know, it's that whole question of what you're not seeing and what you're not getting back. And I think, um, yeah, that's always got to be floating around. And, um, and not to say that librarians have the uber answer to all of that either, but I think we're able to sort of interrogate 
results, you know, based on, you mentioned lateral thinking and kind of, yeah, this doesn't look quite right or we're really going to, you know, it's clear that the glut of search results in a particular area are focused on this area and so, you know, your question uh, from mm. the client's perspective isn't going to really tap into that. So, you know, that that's actually a, a lot more complicated than what it might first appear. Yes, definitely. Mm. So you mentioned that, yeah, importance of research and aligning with research. Um, do you feel like you're really able to push the library into roles that it may not traditionally have been in in 1979 or whatnot? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I'd say it's pretty baby steps here really at the moment, but yeah. I certainly made sure I put my hand up to go on one of the research committees when they formed one here and I I go to the meetings and I you know, look for ways we can contribute. This is in the south. I have tried it in the east as well, but it, you know, each area is quite different and um, yeah. Um, Royal Perth's a bit different in that it's got its own Royal Perth Medical Research Foundation um, and it's also got sort of an East Metro sort of side to the research and it doesn't seem um, quite as... Uh, I'm, they do an awful lot of research but um, I don't feel I'm tapped in as well at, in the East Metro as I am and I guess that's probably just because also we sit behind them so... Um, we hear the conversations, we know what's going on, um, I'm at the committees. As far as I know, there is no research committee in the East, so um, that's a bit more ad hoc there. But I just think you have to take every chance you get to um, you know, put your services forward and make it obvious that you've got something you can bring to the you know, to enhance the quality of the research or the just the capacity to do the research. Yeah. Um, you've, you've just got to be in there all the time. Um, and I think, you know, I, I pass some stuff. We, when, when I say, you know, early days, I mean, by that I mean we don't have a research repository and we don't have a data repository. Um, but I make sure they know that we probably need both of those things. Yeah. Well, we definitely need those things. Um, and, um, yeah, so if they ask for, you know, comments on things I get involved. I've been a judge on the, you know, one section of um, the three-minute presentations they have at the um, Research Showcase Day. Um, yeah, I make sure my staff go to the Research Showcase Day to different sessions, you know, because I think they need to know what um, what's important to the researchers so that, you know, they feel more tied in as well. So... Yeah, so it's just a matter of finding the opportunities, but I wouldn't say we're very far advanced. No, probably nowhere near as advanced as many other libraries around the country would be. Probably a bit even more embedded than, um, much more embedded than we are. Are there other kind of innovations or projects that you have on the boil? Um, not necessarily in research, but in I don't know, consumer literacy or sort of. Uh, we haven't really gone into that area. Um, Too busy doing yeah. systematic reviews. <laughs> yeah, we haven't haven't done much with consumer stuff. I mean, I certainly see um, through the research area there's a consumer uh, involvement in research, which is good to see. And um, I've certainly reached out to our consumer rep there to say, you know, look, we can... You know, this is what we can provide already. Um, so that, mm. that's been good. And he was quite 
um, enthusiastic about that. Um, but not consumer literacy generally. They do have a, um, some of that's sort of a bit corporatized, like at Fiona Stanley, they've got a consumer information booth. Um, that's sort of a, some computers with some volunteers standing around it. So if you need the multiple sclerosis society, they can find it for you and hook you up and, and that's run through the, uh, a local health consumers council. Um, and Lottery West, I think, um, covers some of the costs for it. So some of that is sort of in a way outsourced. Some of the consumer health information leaflets and so on, uh, the Department of Health buys access to those for all of the areas. And uh, so a lot of that is sort of done, you know, the, I haven't actually seen where we could plug it. And quite frankly, I'm a bit reluctant to go into it because we're not a traditional library and certainly not at Fiona Stanley and even at Royal Perth we don't particularly uh, we're not really set up to have the public coming into our libraries like all of our computers are all so locked down you can't do anything unless you can log into it and you can't log into it unless you're staff so uh, there's not much we can do to sort of invite people in and you know yeah and yeah, it, it would just be quite a lot of work, I think. <laughs> yeah, to reorient. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of your own, um, I guess, you know, career and professional development, keeping on top of things, I think anyone who knows you knows that you've always been pretty keen to contribute to the wider profession and um, um, really keep colleagues informed and up-to-date and contribute to committees and all that. I think it's one of your great strengths. Um, have you? Mm. Do you take kind of a deliberate approach to some of that work or you just jump at opportunities or how have you? Yeah, I think I'm a, a bit of an information junkie by nature. I like to mm. know stuff. I think it helps in work to really have your finger on the pulse of where... Th- and things change so rapidly. You know, one of the things I've found working for, you know, 40 years and more now is, you know, I keep saying to people, it's like, you know, people say, oh, how could you work in one place for that long? But it's really like having multiple careers because things change all the time in libraries and they've really changed, you know, just so dramatically in my lifetime and I'm sure they're going to change even more in the future. And, and so, health as well, so you have the twin things of yeah. health changing so rapidly and then libraries and infotech changing so rapidly. So Yeah, and you have to have your finger on the pulse really, you know, because, um, you know, the clients are always ahead of you. You know, they, well, why can't we get this like, you know, in some bizarre format you've never heard of or whatever, you know, why can't we have that and we want this and we want that and you, you, if you're not sort of, if you can't even have the conversation because you don't even know what they're talking about, you know, you've got no credibility as a professional. So yeah. to me, it's just a, something any professional has to do is to keep curious about stuff. And you can't jump on every bandwagon that goes by because some things you look at them and you go, I think that's a fad, that's not going to last, you know. <laughs> um, like really, I think apps have been a fad. Well, not a fad, but you know, apps, everybody wanting an app and you think, yeah. goodness, if you, and every publisher has a different app and they all work differently and you're thinking, oh, thank God for responsive design when that came along for websites because if we'd had any more of these apps, I would have gone insane, you know, because, <laughs> you know, they all, there's a few apps that are really great, you know, like ETG where you can download it onto your phone so that if you're yeah. a 
clinician and the you know the internet goes down or the power goes out you can still look at things on your phone and you know look up dosages and whatever and drugs and that's where a good they, thing yeah where they have a unique subset of content like yeah. up to date or etg um you know those and where it can even download onto your device because yeah. you know people get excited about apps and i go well you don't really need an app because if you've got your phone, you've got the library website, you can get into everything anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really exactly. doesn't and much matter. more than any individual publisher. Like, you know, if Elsevier is just channeling you their content, then you're missing mm. out on Walter's Claw or whatever else. Whereas, you know, library's great strength is that building the collection that's useful um, mm. for content and for users and not for, you know, whatever the publisher's trying to schlock. So. Mm. But yeah, you just you just have to be. I think you know, like there's all sorts of things you know um, that come up that you just need to keep an eye on. You know, there's always something new with you know browser extensions to you know make connecting through to the full text easier. And you've you've really got to have a bit of a solid understanding of how um, all of the the factors that impact on the capacity of one of your clients being able to reach what they want as fast as they can without saying, now go back to the journals A to Z and then find the journal and then go to the year and then go to, you know, they want to skip all those steps and anything you can do to facilitate that means that you're getting maximum value out of expensive resources that you're subscribing to. So, you know, if you're going to spend a lot of money on resources, you've got a responsibility to make sure they're used to their maximum mm. and that includes understanding all of the not not you know in every little detail of the technical back end but you do have to have some comprehension that you know a DOI helps out and it works through Crossref and it links up through your open URL resolver and you know and if you can speed up all of this you know line between the client and the thing that they're after that's your job you know you've got to and you can say so you've got to stay on top of it because yep. that's changing all the time. Um, so yeah. I monitor a lot of lists and I read a lot of journals and um, I might only you know skim read, but I'll keep it in the back of my mind. And if you know you start to see a trend emerging, you start to take a bit more notice. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you do that sort of in terms of health and hospitals as well as library world or? I do, yeah. I'm a, as I said, I am a self-confessed information junkie. So, yeah, yeah I do monitor a lot of lists, and um, and we, um, I, I sort of um, got all the other staff involved in that as well. We maintain a little one of our library guides. We call it the Alerts Harvest, and we harvest stuff into subject areas in there, and then we use Mailchimp to send out mailed alerts on things like. You know, health economics and health management mm. and um, policy, health policy, uh, and then we've got you know others on rehab and OT, you know the various allied health areas. That's pretty popular. Nursing. Uh, so we've got a whole pile of different alerts that we send. Population health, um, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, all of those sorts of things, and so people can sign up. And then I, I look for I I just look for the management type ones, but the other staff now do the hunt for the more clinical stuff. Um, yeah. And we're not trying to, you know, I keep saying to them, we're not trying to catalogue the internet here. You know, people can do a Google search. We're just using this. It's partly marketing. You're putting stuff in front of people on a regular basis that says it's come from the library. You're getting more use out of your subscriptions because. 
um, you know, you, you're sort of linking people back to directly back to a particular article, uh, but we're not, you know, going to tell a rheumatologist, here's what's in the Journal of Rheumatology. We're going to say to the rheumatologist, you might have not seen this because it's in JAMA or it's in New England or it's in MJA. Yeah. So here's the things you may not have seen because they're really not in your, because we don't monitor the, the specialty stuff. We just look for the, you know, the stuff that appears in the general journals that a specialist might miss. Yeah. Um, so, there's five and a half thousand journals at Medline indexes, so it's not like you can really no basis of that you know deep dive content, is it? And we don't ever. We always have a caveat that this isn't comprehensive. Yeah, this is a general alert. Um, if you want something specific, ask us, and we'll do a search on what you specifically want. So, yeah. but no, again. That works, doesn't it? That mix of alerting and then searching, you know, following up if needed and um, alerting from broader sources and perhaps people are drawing on because, you know, where things get published, again, isn't <laughs> um, a straightforward process at all. And so, um, yeah, some of the broader medical journals will have all sorts of content in there that um, people can't possibly keep on top of. So, um, mm. yeah, we can be... Um, bring all of those services to help clinicians um, without having to say, oh, you know, we do this and not that or whatnot. Uh, Mm, mm. But yeah, I think think of it more as a marketing thing than... And and if I know particular, like, and when you start doing that a bit, um, people start to know that like, for instance, I, I sent something on artificial intelligence to one of the radiologists who'd expressed an interest in it. And then he came back and he said, oh, these two other, um, one radiologist and one pathologist, they want to know about this too. So when you send me that, can you send it to them too? And you think, oh, goodness, I've just turned into a personal search engine. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't know how I would hand that on to anyone else because that's not something any of the other staff are looking at. So I've got a little few people I look, and then turned out one of the other, uh, staff members here in Allied Health is very interested in health informatics and um, and he's interested in that too because he's in Heiser um, and so he wants it as well and I think so I've got a few little people that um, if I see stuff like that I flick it to them but I don't go out of my way to look for it it's it's also you know like I haven't got time to go out of my way to systematically find stuff for people it's just if something pops up in a list I'm on or an email I've seen or a yeah, a, a journal or something, you know, some sort of community, or even, you know, stuff I read that other people have contributed to HLA alerts or something like that. If, if you know, other people are finding stuff and con- it's not just me that does this, so other people contribute to our profession. If I see something there, I'll send it to our clients as well. So I think we're in a bit of a good community where lots of people put in with that sort of stuff. Yeah, I agree. Mm. And I think that's kind of the really beautiful thing is you can create a relationship with clinicians where you are able to anticipate some of those things and yeah I mean they're not going to be able to read everything if you went about and did it you know once every two weeks and pulled everything that they might be interested in but just as you come across things flick it to them and uh, I think that's uh, really reflective of a, a robust relationship between the clinician and the librarian so mm, yeah. It's ad hoc but yeah, I mean, I've been surprised a number of times. People have come back and said, oh, perfect timing. And I go, oh, I didn't know you were even working on something to do with that, but there you go. 
So yep. you never know what will hit, hit the mark and what they think, what on earth she sent that for. And I try not to send too much stuff because, you know, yes. these are busy people. So you've got to, you might be an information junkie, but you've got to keep in mind your clients aren't. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're people with patience. <laughs> yes, yeah. And um, all sorts of other information sources coming in as well. So, mm, mm. Um, But yeah, are there things that you're not doing but, would love to do. You mentioned before you'd love more staff. Are there? Um, uh, I guess one thing that always annoys me is I would like to see more integration between the evidence we have at our fingertips and the way in which clinical guidelines get built and developed around the organisation. Um, I, I sort of push it every now and then because you know there's everybody busy writing guidelines and procedures and um, that's a bit of a, a thing where I think our skills could really come into play um, but it wouldn't, you know, there's no way we could take it on. It would be huge to put your hand up to do anything with because I know from the past when I used to run intranet services um, that, you know, that's, you know, <sighs> that's a huge demand. People want all of these guidelines at their fingertips and and you don't you should sort of try to stop people reinventing the wheel as well if there's a guideline out there why can't you use that and just localize it to a certain extent um and I would love love to see um I'd love to have sort of access to some sort of um website like magic app and um be able to pull in you know the guidelines that are used in all of the clinical areas in the hospital into there and you know it just drives me mad that you know even within Perth or within WA Health we've got all of these areas all busy writing their own cardiac catheterization this and their yeah. own you know just I think they're a waste of time you know and um, surely that could be pulled together better and I think our skills would be great for that but it really needs to be clinically driven because if people don't um, uh, you know, I mean, people complain about it a lot, and I I have put it forward as an idea. Like they had a um, data, uh, or what do they call it? A sort of a um, and and they've and lots of areas have formed innovation. Like there is an innovation unit here now. I could put it back up to the innovation unit. I did suggest it as an idea where they were looking for ideas um, a couple of years ago and people said yes 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 sounds great but you know like there's no way it could be done within existing resourcing and of course nobody wants to you know put any resourcing into it and so we stumble along all writing our own guidelines and <laughs> nobody being able to find anything on the internet because the internet's done by communications and IT people and there's been nobody with any sort of information background there so Nobody can find anything on it, even if it's there. So I think that's I've, that's always been a source of aggravation to me that we've never sort yeah. of managed to crack that one. I think when I ran the internet, we did. Well, I mean, it was clunky and it was um, it was the technology was dinosaur level, mm. but at least we had metadata on everything. We we had things interrelated. If a policy got changed we would archive the policy we had archival versions of everything uh, and then when it got taken over by communications it all they just wanted it to be quite a different sort of a beast and um, and I still get questions every now and then oh we've got a case a coronial case or we've got a 
medical legal case and they want to know what the you know where do I find the policy? Okay, well you need to talk to communications because I don't run that service anymore, and I don't yeah. think anyone could ever retrieve any of that stuff anymore. So you know you, you've really got to understand what you're doing when you're dealing with guidelines and things. And I wish. Wish I'd made more inroads in that, but it's just a. It would be a full time job for about three people, I think. Yeah, and that mm. that sort of communications approach is just well. What's the most efficient way to upload the most recent guideline, and that sort of it, rather than you know, whereas the library sits really right across, you know, the whole of the health service, and so you can see where there's duplication or where there's poor evidence used where there is poor archiving of you know, historical... And where you can even index things so that people, you know, if one person calls it this and another person calls it that, it doesn't matter because it's indexed with both terms. And, you yeah. know, we did all of that. I think we did what we did quite well with some pretty cruddy old technology. Um, mm. And if we'd had decent technology... Um, we could even build it so at some point it could integrate into an electronic medical record but and that seems to be possible with um, magic um, but uh, yeah I, I don't know I think I, I don't have the energy for that anymore because I think it's just a massive job and uh, yeah no one really wants to tackle it <laughs> yeah, maybe AI will solve that for us eh? maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, can you see I don't know, the future of health libraries in five years' time? Are they going to look and do roughly similar things or are there radical shifts in the pipeline or obsolescence uh, in the I pipeline? I sort of vary between being deeply depressed and pessimistic <laughs> and occasionally a little spot of optimism. Um, I am worried because I do think that um, I can see it just in our own state, you know, that the you know the state of the libraries is very variable, and um, some are well resourced. And basically, if you're not resourced, you can't do it. You know, there's no point. You know, saying these people should do more. They don't, they're not resourced to do more. There's nothing yeah. they can do. Um, and I do worry that um, you know the libraries are disappearing across the country. Sometimes it's not bad. You know, sometimes the merging is a good thing. I think you get personally. I'm a big fan of merging health libraries to become bigger, because yeah. I think unless you're larger, you've got no economy of scale. You've got no capacity to develop career paths for people. You've got you tend to if you're very small, you tend to have very tiny numbers of people, probably paid at base grade, who really struggle with. Um, some of the stuff that's expected in terms of you know contracts and procurement and um, uh, you know some of that stuff where um, organisations now expect you to be you know on top of all sorts of you know uh, contracty type you know high level management -y stuff. Um, mm. they, yeah, so I, I think libraries struggle, and I think we would be better off if we. And I've been pushing that a bit here that. Um, at one point, I was pushing to have a single library across WA Health, but the problem is when you start out and you're a reasonably funded and resourced library and you're talking about merging with libraries that are not well resourced, my two managers across East and South sort of um, were not too keen on that because I think justifiably they were worried that they would just be buying into problems of another health service and since we're all now independent entities with our own board, 
no one wants to buy into anyone else's problems <laughs> and I understand that completely I do understand that viewpoint but on the other hand we could achieve a lot more if we were bigger and if we could work together as one system and certainly professionally I think you know having 10.6 staff is an awful lot better than having 1.2 <laughs> or yeah. one or less than one in some places you know it's um what you can do when you've, you're a single FTE librarian in a health service, I do not know really because, you know, you must be pulled from pillar to post. And I, I so I think um, uh, some sort of, you know, some mergers are a good thing, but, um, but it's, it's yeah, I am worried about the, the increasing number of smaller libraries and I'm in, worried about the, you know, the smaller libraries that in smaller health districts that maybe only have access to whatever the state system buys them because I'm not sure they have very much to offer. And certainly being a library with a like a fairly large number of publisher packages uh, and unique collections, not just aggregation type collections. Mm. Um, we are now a very big net supplier to the rest of Australia, which is not sustainable either. And um, I wonder what would happen if a library like ours did pull out of that free network and what that would mean for smaller libraries. And it might might be good. They might realise that they're organised, or not Not that the librarians don't realise it. I think the librarians are always aware of it, but the, their management may not realise that they've been getting away by being subsidised by another library somewhere else for a very long time. Yeah. And now they're going to have to pull their own weight if they want to get their hands on what their own clinicians need. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I vary between being optimistic and pessimistic and, you know, Sometimes I think you get older and you think you're the centre of the universe and how will the world possibly cope when I'm gone? But I'm quite sure it'll cope very well when I'm gone. <laughs> There's always someone oh, that'll step up. So yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. You know. It's a bit of a trap you fall into, isn't it? That you start to think you're indispensable, but you're not. <laughs> no, but um, I think you've certainly carved out a you know, substantial contribution, not only in the local area, but to health libraries across Australia and um, to um, some of that resource sharing in terms of national library and that type of thing. I think you've made a huge contribution to those areas too. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right, no one's indispensable, but nevertheless, I think what you've done has been enormous in some areas. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah, but as I say, I sometimes wonder whether I'm working towards things that will probably... Um, in the short term, maybe be a bit more painful for some of the smaller libraries if yeah. you know um, if there are changes that they're not adapting to fast enough, or if there are. Um, but anyway, it's a bit hard to know how it's all going to go. There's such a lot of change in that area at the moment as well. That's another area that's just Could you a see massive amount of change going on. Academic literature really opening up, or. Um, so yeah, that's been in, that's been the most interesting thing in the last couple of years, hasn't it? That whole yeah. move to open access, and um, certainly the initial optimism from Plan S was looking very optimistic, but now there's been a major swing saying, you know, you haven't taken into account the value that publishers add into the whole process of publishing, and um, mm. and somebody's got to pay for that. There's no free lunch, and who's going to pay for it? Who's going to do it? 
where's the model uh, that's going to make this sustainable? And um, certainly the big publishers seem to have turned it around to the point where they're still making money, even more money, with article processing charges. So how do you stop that and, and yet, you know, improve access and... Yeah, it's a, it's a huge, huge unknown, all of that, where that's going to go. Mm. Uh, and again, I think nationally we would have some, it, there would be some benefit in the health libraries around the country banding together on some of that stuff the way the Council of the Australian University Librarians does with their electronic buying or their licensing system and their you know, pricing, uh, how they come up with consortium pricing nationally. I'd mm. love to see something like that happen for health libraries where we could work together to you know, vastly improve the amount of access there is because you know, people keep talking about equity but uh, you can't have equity if there's no budget there. <laughs> yeah, I would right. love to see equity too. I would love to see everybody in WA Health having exactly what they need but if there is no budget there you can't do it and so how do you influence you know how far you can stretch your budget and to me we're going to have to work nationally on that I think if we possibly can in any sort of structure we can come up with. Again creating that economy of scale and a bit of heft in terms of influence and um, um, yeah you know, locations, all that type of thing to actually... It's a, yeah, a it's that sort of... You can sort of see the need for it, but you can't see the mechanism to make yeah. it happen because, again, if we can't even do it within one state health service, um, you know, health... Because we're already atomised into our health service providers, um, yep. how are we ever going to do it nationally? So... Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. We we desperately need a National Library of Medicine, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, yeah, to sort of create something like that um be a bit visionary, wouldn't it? But, yeah, it's a pity. Yeah. It's, I can't see it happening, but that's what I think would make the difference, you know, mm. like if you're ever going to achieve Definitely. anything... Um, how is that ever going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess you know, people have to give up some control in order to do that. And then people don't like mega bureaucracies and things as well, don't they? So for every advantage that you have, there's probably you know, fears of it undermining yeah, local... And justifiable fears, and... But, but you can't do nothing. I yeah. mean, doing nothing doesn't guarantee nothing will change <laughs> you know yeah, that that's not a solution either but um the way forward's not always very clear unfortunately uh, and then to actually yeah, collaborate and articulate what that way forward is um is as you say those mechanisms can be really difficult to make manifest so mm-hmm. mm. Nevertheless, onwards in March. Any final thoughts or opinions you want to share with the podcast listening world? Uh, no, I just think um, I think we need to work together. You know, we're definitely stronger when we work together and we you know, stay as collaborative as we possibly can be. I think that's a great thing about health libraries I've benefited from over the years. Um, and, you know early mentors in the role and you know, 
think I'd like to mention my first boss, Natalie Sugden, in particular. She was a great... I mean, I don't think I was a very good librarian when I started out. But um, I think um, some of those, um, Ethel Horner from the Princess Margaret Hospital, um, June Ryder-Jones from Royal Perth, some of the... um, the librarians I dealt with in my Ingrid Sims from the University Medical Library. I think the early, I think those people had a big influence on me and um, I see that, you know, in lots of librarians around my age. They A lot of them have had those early mentoring relationships. I think it's really important that we um, keep that up for people coming through in the profession. So, um and you feel like yeah. you've been able to do that, pass that on to... Uh, I don't know. I think maybe that's why I'm an information junkie and I keep distributing stuff through HLA alerts and stuff. Yeah. I like to to share the share the stuff I'm seeing and where I think it's going to have an impact on us and our profession. But, um, um, yeah, it's, hmm. yeah, I try my little bit. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks very much for being so generous with your time and your thoughts, and um, until we meet again. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. No worries at all. Thanks, Cheryl. Bye. Okay, see you later.